Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. How do you take a youth athlete and empower them to become self-motivated? Furthermore, what steps are required to ensure that the athlete can develop their own meaningful trajectory to success? Jim Davis of the Good Athlete Project has a simple arsenal of field-tested tools to lead kids using concepts like morality and mindfulness. Do not be misled by the jargon, though. This program is absolutely not fluff. It's based in cognitive science and proven practice. But it doesn't happen on accident. Intentional coaching is a proactive discipline that starts with you. Don't take my word for it, though. Hear from accomplished athlete, compassionate coach, and inspiring intellectual Jim Davis. This is episode 242. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? It is that time again for Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Strength and conditioning. You Ing. said it. Ing. 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 You said it. It's just fun. it's Ing. it's a rule by now that everyone knows. There's plenty of ings trailing off that conditioning. Ing. Ing. We're bringing Ing. Ing. You <laughs> another <laughs> episode of uh, the premier podcast. Yada yada yada. Uh, I'm just gonna jump into it. One, the only seminar we really have in the books, no one's going to be able to visit. It's, uh, it's at, it's, we're in Antarctica. We're the big penguin population down there, and uh, we're, they're big toes forward advocates. So we're going to go to the ping, empowering the performance of penguins in Antarctica. Is that correct, John? Yeah, well, you know, uh, they have an interesting lineage that um, two penguins actually traveled from Antarctica to get on Noah's Ark. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. fascinated by one, their durability, but also their persistence to get there. And we just really want to check with the population, see about, um, you know, how their foot position works with driving internal hip torque. <laughs> Penguins are big lateral of speed and agility species, I'm told. I'll have to look up on Discovery Kids. For the well, penguins. actually, no, I think they're more sagittal athletes. No, they, uh, are, they are aqua athletes. Mm. Look, have you ever seen just freaking uh, like USA Olympic swimmers outside of the water and how unnatural? Are you wa- saying they look like waddle? penguins? Exactly, they waddle, but in the water, amazing. That's that's penguins. So yeah. we are bringing dry land training, the revolution of strength and conditioning to. The to penguins. penguins. Well, what's the goal? I mean, are we just going to go down there and do dry land training in hopes of making them more efficient, better, uh, like hunters and swimmers, and just being able to evade danger? So, I I mean, it's a real live application. I mean, we are helping to preserve the penguin population by making them more efficient in the water so that they can, uh, you know, get away from danger and just become, you know. Well, I I can't recall who said it, but if you're stronger, you're harder to kill. We're just bringing that to, you know, animals. Yeah. Well, uh, are we going to get them in? I mean, I know we've uh, formulated some, like, uh, basic barbell type things that we're going to figure out ways to load the, you know, load the the penguins, (laughs) which uh, I'm I'm really excited, the idea of overloading the central nervous system of a penguin. This will be our first first marsupial seminar as well, I believe. John's adaptation of bedrock, just, you know, iceberg. For our <laughs> are penguins, penguins uh, uh, marsupials? I don't know. I made that up. No, they're not. Uh, but I do know that they do travel around with a, a little rock that they keep, and then they give the rock to their potential mate. So they uh, they are much like Luke Summers, and they are uh, serial monogamous. Serial <laughs> ah. <laughs> monogamous and gift givers. So, ladies and gentlemen. So, if, but no if, no penguin has ever given the triple rock. Uh-huh. So that's why Luke Ooh. is going to be their god. Yeah, mm. and uh, you know. If you're a penguin and you're listening, you got to check out that seminar. Uh, it's on December 31st, the coldest day of the year in Antarctica. <laughs> well, you know, the one thing I'm a little nervous about Antarctica is, uh, you know, Tex was telling me that in his flat, uh, flat Earth theory that Antarctica is actually the secret gateway to the edge of the Earth. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to explore that and help Tex, uh, you know, either solidify or, uh, you know, really just 
come to terms with the fact that uh, the Earth is round and not flat, Tex. Hmm. I don't buy it. Uh, I know you're a flat earther. I'm a glober. Glober. Barreling forward, you may think this is a joke Hmm. episode, but it's not. Tex really does think the Earth is flat. (laughs) 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 But we do have a guest on uh, on the episode. We have Jim Davis, who's the director of the Good Athlete Project. Tex and I had the good fortune of getting on his podcast, and he let us kind of word barf, and I guess we... We didn't really get to experience, Jim, everything you had to offer because just a few weeks later, Tex mm. saw you down at the NSCA conference, right? So give us a little bit of background on you, man. Okay, a little bit of background on me. As, uh, as an educator, uh, my first big job was uh, at a place called Nutri High School. Luke, you know it pretty well. Yeah. We had some battles. Is that okay to reference that? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, people, people if you don't know, I'm a high school football. Uh, that's where I burned out. That's where I peaked. But, you know, I got a state championship like Tex. So. There you go. Or Jim. Hang so. rock. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Evidently, Jim has a runner-up ring. Uh, something like that, yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we made T-shirts. Um, <laughs> no, so, so uh, my first gig was at Nutria where I played. Um, we started a strength program over there. That program started with 80 people, and essentially I just dragged a, a desk into a room, served the football team, a handful of wrestlers, and that was that at the start. We've grown that thing from 80 to actually, we just ran the numbers the other day. We're at 1340 for the year. Wow. Um, so I, I'm pretty confident we're at least, I don't know, I can't speak for quality. That's kind of a joke, but uh, we're certainly the biggest, um, one of the biggest high school strength conditioning programs in the nation. Uh, definitely in the state, I think number one in the state. Not that that matters. Um, results do matter though. And I think we've, we've done some pretty incredible things on that end. I'm really proud of our kids. They've grown massively. Um, and the interest is really taken off on this thing. So it's humbling, but that was like our first build. Um, I say we, because we now also have a staff of eight part-time employees. We've got some interns coming on in. Um, we mentioned Alex already. Our, our last kind of second in command has gone on to take over a, uh, the head coaching role at another high school, St. Vider. I don't know if that's a familiar one. Um, so we're kind of taking people through, putting them under our wing and moving them on and trying to change high school strength and conditioning as it's, uh, as it's known right now. The rest of my professional career would include, um, we went from there, kind of realized a good product that we were putting out at Nutrier, decided to scale it and develop something called the Illinois High School Powerlifting Association. So it's powerlifting done a little bit differently. Uh, I powerlifted a little bit to supplement my football career, which we can talk about as well if that's uh, interesting. But um, it was actually, um, this is kind of a humble brag. I, I, I just won my second state championship in powerlifting. Um, for which I did get a, a ring, Luke. Oh, congratulations. Um, so I won my second state championship uh, and then just kind of looked around the place and realized that I was in a YMCA basement um, with nobody I knew. Uh, my dad was over in the corner taking pictures, but, but it was um, as cool as it was and as, as proud as I was of the work I had put in and, and the community around powerlifting, I was like, I, needed, if, I felt like I needed a team. That was the thing that was missing. So the IHSPLA is drug-free, unequipped, team-based powerlifting. Um, and we actually, we've grown that now. We had like a two or three team meet was our first one. Um, we will host the, I think it's the fourth annual uh, state championship in May. And we're going to, I mean, we have like 400 plus athletes coming. We've got 20 or more teams, um, even more in attendance. So that's grown pretty quickly and it's pretty cool as well. Uh, from that, I went off to, after the development of that, I went off to Harvard to pick up another degree and, um, and at Harvard developed this thing, the Good Athlete Project. And Good Athlete Project is an education consulting foundation 
um, that helps students realize their potential through athletics. So that'd be the easy intro. Busy, busy dude. Busy dude. So Lots of side hustles. Yeah. No, text. Lots of side <laughs> Talk about the presentation. So, so what did talk about your degrees from Harvard? Because I think, like, you think of a high school strength coach, Jim, and I'll just go ahead and stereotype. Say it. And I've, it's basically like a guy like me, right? Fucking <laughs> former washout, peaked in high school type dude, went and got some fucking technical bullshit degrees, doesn't like the mm. corporate world, and goes into teaching and coaching, right? Maybe, maybe. It's may, it mm. might be my dream come true. But, dude, you're a well-educated guy. You're in fucking upper echelon. Uh, and it's not like you went to Harvard for business either. It was pretty technical type of degree, right? Um, yeah, so the degree was human development and psychology, and um, my particular interest in that was cognitive neuroscience for a number of reasons. So, yeah, it, it's it's technical, but kind of applicable also. 100%, yeah. Yeah, yeah and you, I mean, I guess you think of traditional strength coach going into kinesiology, right? Fucking sets and reps, bing, bang, boom. And then you think of previous podcast guests we've had, you know, uh, like Tom Furman, Chris McDougall, talking about more of the social psycho component of getting people in shape or unlocking athletic potential. And then it becomes more, you know, the success hinges on your ability to understand the psychology, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and the, so I, 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 I think I know where you're aiming this. Um, I get this question all the time. Um, like I'm at, I'm at the high school level. I'm staying at the high school level. Um, well, I think one, because I'm super loyal and I love the place. and I love the people. Um, but the other thing is like, if I were to step back and say like, what do I actually want to do? Like, I want to make people stronger. I want to make people faster. I, you know, I do want to help them reach their performance goals, but I want to like, I want to like legitimately have an impact on, on a great number of people's lives for sure. I think, um, I'm like, you might be uniquely positioned to do that based on like the, my interests and background. Um, and if I'm going to do that and I really mean what I say, I think high school might be the place to do it. Right. I think you're sort of at least, you know, looking, reflecting on my own experience. Um, that's where I was certainly the most malleable, right? Like by the time I got to college and beyond, I, I thought I knew some stuff right or wrong. So we're, we're interacting with people at exactly the right time. It's also a nice balance of, you know, some of the concepts we like to talk about, um, strength conditioning, psychology, otherwise, um, they can be a little bit high level. So at high school, like you can understand the stuff, but you're also like super open to stuff, if that makes sense. So they're high enough level, but not, not beyond quite yet. Very much so. So a big, big thing we say in strength and conditioning, everything works, but not forever. But I, I feel that I can't say that about kind of motivation, connecting with athletes. So let's mm -hmm. get into some of the, the models that you presented at the NSCA conference in particular, kind of the, your performance, your high order performance period, and then the levels of motivation. Sure. Yeah. So the high order performance, this framework for high order performance, like it's the most freaking, it's the most obvious thing to me that I could imagine. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to tap into, utilize and recall. So at the peak of like what we're all going for, whether it's physical, um, relational, it could be academic. It just be like literally like just cognitive, like the way that you think it's some kind of high order performance. That's what we're always kind of aiming for. And the truth is that's where most, most of the conversation is happening is like, you know, what is, um, you know, it, growth mindset is a, is a term that's very familiar, I think to a lot of people, uh, that's like a high order thing that requires actually like language to frame a situation. And you're talking about becoming a high achiever, high performer. Uh, but that's at the pinnacle of this framework at the base of it, yeah, are, the, are the physiological needs 
um, that, that go way too often overlooked. We want people to eat, move and sleep in the right way. Um, and the super obvious anecdote to explain that is like, just go without sleep for a couple of days and you'll see how freaking important this is, um, to reach high order performance, right? Uh, survive off Cheetos and Mountain Dew for a few days. Like you think you're going to be good at relationships or talking to people or, or exercising, you know, I don't mean to ex- training, excuse me. Um, so I'm with, uh, your exercise might suffer too, but that's a different story. Um, but you know what I mean? So it, it, it's fairly easy to grasp on that level, but it's also, it's funny. Our, our behavior does not match that. Uh, and, and you know, it's, I was kind of putting this together and this is kind of funny. Um, one of the ways I found you guys was, uh, I've looked up Sherry Ma a lot, like pretty much everything she's got. Um, and John, when you were talking to Sherry Ma on your guys' podcast about having kids and like what a kind of a sleep nightmare that is and how function is, is so hinged on that, that is a conversation that we have over and over on the, uh, on the professional level. No, it's right. awful. Uh, and I tell <laughs> these guys, wait till you have kids. Like, uh, I, uh, <laughs> So uh, I do some consulting work and work with this company called PowerDot, which are these EMS devices, and they're in the process mm-hmm. of linking their technology with a few other kind of wearable technologies, and one of them is uh, the Whoop Band. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't yeah. know if I'm letting the cat out of the bag or whatnot. Sorry, Eric, if I am. But uh, so we got some Whoop Bands to kind of test them out and see how the like the whole process works. So, of course, I'm sitting in a box for like three weeks in front of the last night. I'm like, oh, let me cut this thing open. And so uh, they sent me two, one for my wife, and we're like, okay, let's figure this out. I get everything all jiggy, put it on. I wake up this morning and it's like, uh, you were in bed by like, you know, 1045 or whatever it was within my allotted time where it says, Hey, you need to reach this amount of time for peak performance, wake up at 6am. And, uh, it's like, I wake up and I'm like, Oh man, I probably got like eight hours of sleep. It was like five hours and 43 minutes. And I was like, Oh God. And then I remember my son cried at like 1157 and just like, uh, the uninterrupted sleep and like, you know, it's like you, you know, and then all of a sudden it looked and it like gave me this, uh, this number for like whatever my number for the workout today. And it was already in the fucking deficit. And I was laughing. I'm like, I've not, I haven't even been wearing it 24 hours and I'm already in the fucking hole. <laughs> I was like, motherfucker, like this is, this is parenthood in a, uh, in a little microcosm. And then my wife was pissed off because hers was even less. It was like two hours. Oh, no. And she's like, you think I got two hours last night? I'm like, no, that thing's totally <laughs> broken. Oh my God. But yeah, no, uh, um, you know, when we were connecting with Sherry on that, it's pretty interesting to think, uh, you know, two things and something I, I, I always wanted to reach back out to her was, um, I think if you sleep and you're, you're pretty well slept and you're used to it and you have one terrible night of sleep, this is, I mean, kind of going off on a tangent. Like, I think it really messes you up. But if mm-hmm. as a parent, you condition yourself to not sleep. I think you start becoming like, uh, you start figuring out compensation methods or just ways to kind of see yourself through it. But then all of a sudden it hits you and then you're totally dead. So I always joke with these guys, man, I can't wait till you guys have, have kids. I'm hopefully going to be through this and I'll just be like, it's awful. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry you, but you know, let's go, you know, like just keep drinking coffee and keep finding a way through it. But, uh, no, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, no, Sherry was great. That was, uh, one of the more interesting podcasts uh, we've had and definitely provided a lot of kind of, you know, wasted time research into like what she's doing and how necessary to apply it. But ultimately it comes down to the more sleep you get, the longer you live, the better you are and the higher you perform. Yeah, no question. And, and, um, and we acknowledge that as like a core stable, but we also try to teach for the mindset piece where it's like, so if you, whatever, if a dog's barking the night before the game and you don't get enough sleep, I'm, you're, you'll be fine. Just like go with it. So uh, the willingness to go uh, without sleep 
if called upon to do so, but the, like the foresight to not have to do that very often. So, so you guys are looking at like almost, um, and, and, and I used to watch this all the time. I would watch guys get into these, uh, really strange, uh, like almost rituals or like Mm -hmm. superstitions. Like I need to be in bed by this time. And then if something didn't happen or something went contrary to it, something was outside their control, it completely shattered them. And I was always very, uh, like very cognizant of those, of getting into those patterns. Um, mm-hmm. but I tried to stick with ones that I knew I could control. Like, uh, I used, and this is so weird, but I used to dress my whole left side of the body. Like I would put on my left sock, put on my knee brace, everything on the left side. And then I would do the right side. Like it was kind of just a, a strange ritual, but like I used yeah. to watch guys with, uh, like one guy had to have two packs of spearmint gum before every game. And then mm-hmm. he didn't end up with the spearmint gum and completely fucking threw them off. So like, I wonder how much, uh, yeah. you know, patterning and, and kind of repetition kind of goes into this stuff. No question. I think we try to teach people to be aware, but not obsessed yep. for that same reason that you were saying, like, you should be conscious of, of the decisions you're making, um, getting the best kind of habit that you can. So it doesn't, so it's not like an extra, it, it's not extra to think about your sleep habits. They just are what they are. The 45 minutes before bed system. If one gets thrown, you're obsessed with it. You move on to the next one. Um, that, that's a super important distinction, especially especially with athletes. So have you guys looked at any research uh, about like uh, technology um, and how it affects sleep? I'm pretty fascinated with this and um, the idea like, uh, you know, now they have like uh, an app to blue light and they say, you know, no mm-hmm. technology 45 minutes before bed to the point where like don't even charge it in your room. And uh, I mean, I, I can think since I've probably had some form of smart device, I've sat there and like checked my email, did whatever I had to do before I bet to, went to bed. And then I just, you know, turned it over and go to sleep. So I yep. wonder if, uh, if that's, I mean, and that's something that's only happened within probably the last four five, six, seven years. I wonder mm-hmm. if there's any research or have you seen anything, especially with kids in terms of affecting them? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So those are two, you just brought up a huge subject, what that stuff's doing to kids for sure. Um, yeah, the blue light thing seems to be real right? The, you, you wouldn't get the same melatonin production when you're trying to turn over and go to sleep if you're, if you're getting a lot of blue light right before bed, right? You're essentially tricking your brain into thinking it's still daylight. Uh, but like you, there are, I, can, I can think of plenty of times where I've been on, uh, put it down and was out. Um, I think sleep, like there's no, in the body, in the mind, all of it, there is no linear one-to-one build for anything, right? It's all so complex. So on those days, maybe I'm just thinking to myself, maybe I was worn out. Um, Maybe my last cup of coffee was appropriately timed. You know what I mean? I wasn't hitting one more at four or five o'clock. So I wasn't caffeinated. I was tired from my workout or, you know, high cognitive load or what they call sleep pressure in your brain from the day. Um, And so that wasn't really affected by the whatever blue light stimulus, right? Um, Yeah, it's certainly not a one-to-one. It's it's a factor, but it's not a one-to-one. And we've all like, we've probably all slept on couches. We probably all had three hour naps in the middle of the day. Sleep's kind of a, a tricky thing in that way. You, if, if you really need it, your body will shut down and get it for sure. One, uh, one thing that we tell our kids, um, you mentioned this, John, like you, you will die if you don't get sleep. And that's one of the other, like we're talking about high order performance. We're talking about this accomplishing big things. We're talking about recovering from intense workouts. Um, but you will die if you don't sleep enough. The Guinness Book of World Records, Guinness Book of World Records, will allow you to walk a freaking tightrope across the Grand Canyon. You can juggle chainsaws, but they will no longer allow you to deprive yourself of sleep. For the record, ooh, because I didn't like, know that. It, wow, like, it, like it, you know what I mean? Like in theory, you could juggle. If you're really good at juggling chainsaws, you can do it for a while. 
uh, you, there's no such thing as being good at being sleep deprived. You get used to it. You know, right? there's, um, if you, uh, we work with a lot of military guys and, uh, one of my good friends is, um, you know, pretty gone through many, many schools in terms of like interrogation and like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they have these kind of like seer schools, torture deal. And the single, like I asked him like, uh, you know, is it this, is it ripping, you know, your fingernails out with, uh, with pliers? What is it? And he's like, dude, none of that shit happens. And I was like, well, yeah. well, then how do you torture somebody? He's like, you sleep deprive them. You basically, uh, you know, you set an alarm where, you know, every 30 minutes music goes off. You have somebody come in and either kick it or wake them up and you just do it in shifts and you sleep deprive the person until they get to the point of just mental and physical and emotional exhaustion. And then at that point you start asking questions and it's like the, you know, the movies where you see the guys getting beat up and doing all this crazy stuff. He's like, no, dude, you don't have to do any of that stuff. You just deprive somebody of sleep to the point where they have zero defense and zero ability to safeguard themselves against anything. And he goes, it might take somebody two days. It might take 10. It might take 11. And he goes, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, uh, we will get the information based off of that idea of keeping somebody awake until they give us what they want. And uh, hearing that, I was like, it sounds like parenthood. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like twins. Uh, But like that, I mean, that's a pretty amazing uh, statement that they've realized that, you know, physical torture will only get you so far that'll get people lying and people will just tell you anything just to get it to stop mm-hmm. but actually sleep, sleep depriving uh, breaks down all barriers and uh, allows them to extract the information they want and I just I, I, I just had a flashback to kind of I guess my days with Raf and he asked me and I don't know if this is serious or not if I ever like practice sleep de- deprivation like would stay up on purpose for myself I'm like no never and he was like yeah 18 hours 18 hours is equal to just yeah. Like drinking three beers. And I was like, what? Yeah, Is that no. what you do for fun? No, it, I mean, uh, they've done pretty extensive things with like cortisol and body fat testing. I mean, they know that if, uh, you know, like people that sleep within a certain time, I mean, uh, Inclodon did this with, uh, he had three control groups and he had, these were older men that were on hormone replacement. They were, he, what, were they NFL guys too? Nah, that I don't remember, okay. but no, that was the thing with growth hormone. I think you'd find this interesting. Uh, Tom did a pretty extensive uh, study on all starting quarterbacks and actually backups in the NFL. So it was 60, what is that? 64 guys mm-hmm. uh, at the time and came in and did blood testing on every one of them, talked to them, you know, got a, you know, tell me how you feel, what do you do? And a bunch of the guys kept complaining, saying, you know, I think I'm low in testosterone. I just don't feel like I used to. And uh, he told me every single guy he tested was not low in testosterone, but not a single one of them made any noticeable amount of growth hormone. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, he basically put it back to hits to the head, um, you know, constant hits to the head, um, you know, causing something within the pituitary and, um, you know, basically making them, uh, you know, not produce growth hormone. But um, on a side note, he uh, he had a group of three different in, uh, three different groups in one test. And I think they were guys in their, you know, 40s or 50s and 60s that were on some form of HRT. And the guys that were in the three to five hour sleep group and then there was like a five to seven and then more than seven so they, he just categorized them on there like hey this is how much i typically sleep okay. and the guys that were in the lowest group the three to five hours no matter what they uh, were prescribed what they took they, they saw no physiological effects from it so it didn't matter how much testosterone didn't matter what they did for hormone replacement it did not work the other groups uh the middle group took like it was kind of an interesting deal like those guys no matter what they took they had nothing the middle group made okay with what the amount the uh 
the the number one group that slept the most had the most improvements with the least with almost uh, a, with a lesser dose in the middle group. Yeah. So it went back to this thing like even in a, you know taking exogenous drugs, if you sleep, it will block those things. I mean, because you got to think about uh, you know testosterone receptors and you know uh, cortisol and and you know all these different uh, you know hormones at play. So it's a pretty fascinating deal, and I just wonder for kids today that with so much technology, blue lights, so much oh, available yeah. to them, that it's got to, I mean, we're not going to see the physiological effects. And I, I was telling somebody the other day, I think we're going to see, like we are right now in this peak of like mobile usage and this, and all of a sudden we're going to have a, a huge downturn where like, at, you know, you come in the garage and you basically put your phone in a box and you lock it in there and it doesn't open until you know, uh, six in the morning when you come out. And I think people are going to have to do something like that just to reclaim not only like their family, their kids, their life and a little semblance of sanity. And you're like, dude, I'm, I'm controlled with this electronic leash of information that not only am I, um, you know, information's coming at me that I need to process and give them information back, but also like wasted fucking time. Like how many times mm -hmm. am I just fucking find myself scrolling through Instagram and be like, what the fuck am I doing? And just like, I need to go to bed. Well, what, what you're doing is like, like you're being captured by um, the most brilliant minds in the world. You know, like the most, most brilliant minds in the world are not running countries, sadly. They are in, you know, they're making billions of dollars doing one thing better than anyone else. And that's capturing the attention of an incredibly large audience. There's this, uh, there's this thing. Todd Rose was a former professor of mine. Great guy. Wrote a book called The End of Average, which I think applies to a lot of the stuff that um, you guys look at. But um one of the things that he talked about was end of average text. Have you read that? No, I haven't, but I'm in. Yeah. Uh, write that down and then uh, let me know. Cause I'm going to buy that. I'm I, not to cut you off. I'm stuck in this legacy of ashes book, which is uh, the history of the CIA and it's 774 pages. Yeah. And it's like listening to tech, uh, text talk to me about uh, life. So it's super well, engaging and interesting. No, about girls. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, but anyway, okay, let me guess text. The, the, what I was going to say was, um, so Todd Rose tells this anecdote and, and I, I love the guy. He talks about, um, a surgeon general's warning that warns against like all these things like, um, may cause obesity, antisocial behavior, psychopathy, um, et cetera, et cetera. It starts going down this list. Um, and like sort of the reveal of this anecdote is that what he's talking about is, um, books. That was a surgeon general's warning around the advent of the printing press. Right. Um, and I, and this? Uh, the, I mean, they had been in the printing press, but I mean, yeah. what, like way, way back. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I think the point of that story is that at every new great leap in technology, people are super wary of it. So there's, there's natural skepticism and all that stuff. And, and I think that's what the, the position a lot of people have taken to, to these kind of devices. Um, I agree with that to a point, but I'm also thinking like, this is not a book. The most compelling story in the world doesn't, uh, it can't control the way that you think and it can't control your attention in the way that th this does, right? There, um, it's just not the same, right? The, the reason that you're on uh, Facebook on a mobile device or Instagram or something like that, there's all these Im embedded um, concepts that like, think about this, when you scroll up, when you take a look at a picture, there's the hint of the next picture just below. Always. You could write as much as you want. Um, that written section below the picture is abbreviated with a little more tag, right? So that the next picture, the pure, pre, very like the sliver of the next picture is down there. So it's just like, it's causing a constant role. They consider everything, right? And the thing with, with hunting for people's attention is that you always have to undercut everyone else. So think about this. You're talking about what's going to happen to the kids over the course of this time. Maybe, um, Maybe a kid who likes to read books and go outside and interact with the world has a natural attention span of 30 seconds, 
maybe not that long, but we call it 30 seconds. If we're trying to steal it, we got to be at 29, right? And if you want to get in front of that technology, you got to be at 28. So this thing is, this is moving at a pace, like the stuff that (laughs) the stuff that the games I see people playing, I mean, it is just an assault of color and sound. I don't know. You can barely make sense of it. Well, I mean, uh, I'll tell you this. If somebody wants to do a cool idea, uh, we could probably get a GoFundMe going for this or some form of deal. But I actually think like some box that you mount in the garage when you walk in and you put in, it's no, like a time lock. I, I got it for the office. Oh, okay. Yeah, perfect. You, you can set your, you set it for like a 30, 60, 90, or you set a timer. Yeah. You set a timer. You so put it in and it closed. Like, okay, we're going on a 90 minute world board. Put in the fucking box. Let's yeah. go. That, to, to me, I think that is, uh, as I was sitting there today, cause, uh, or last night, um, I was sitting there working on something and all of a sudden I looked over and my daughter's like, we have like a, an Island and there's kind of a place for like the chairs and they've like hide underneath there. And I look and they, uh, even though the phone's locked, they can hit my wife's phone and they can ask Siri to do things for them. My daughters are six and and yeah. they figured out to be like, hey, Siri, show us princess videos. And it'll take them to YouTube, even though the phone's locked, and we'll show them like uh, Princess Elena and this. And they're in there watching these little videos. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they explained to me, I'm like, this isn't a TV night. Like, we let you guys watch TV on Saturday. You guys can't do this. And so I take the phone and then I try to recreate it. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that if the phone's locked, I can get Siri to answer and she'll do things. So what did I do? Disconnect Siri. Fuck that thing. Get her out of it. So, but I mean, that's uh, that's uh, just begs to the intelligence and like the, how these kids are being developed. I mean, that's uh, I was frankly I was impressed. I was like, I'm not even mad. I, th- I oh, think yeah. this ties very yeah, well. They speak oh, that language fluently already. There's yeah, there. Jim, I think this ties very well to what we're talking about in the next the next level up in that pyramid where you go into language commu- communication and relationships. Mm-hmm. So we've identified a problem. And, you know, we have our our base of eat, sleep and move. But now we see technology taking away or how does how does language communication relationship build into, I guess, uh, not distracting the athletes with all this Mm -hmm. technology or, you know, outside stuff towards their goal? Yeah. So the language part is especially important. Um, Like I'll go back to the idea of growth mindset. It's one that everyone's kind of talking about. If you can't use language to frame um, a situation in your life, then growth mindset is not really a possibility, right? And the example is, and you know, in the, in the research, it's essentially you confront people with an unwinnable task. Have you guys heard about this stuff? Is this familiar? I think so. Let's, right. let's roll into it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we know nothing. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. I know, so I know a lot, but yeah. I well, I mean, you are I mean, from, from Naperville high school. <laughs> It was, it was a book written by um, Carol Dweck and Luke. And um, essentially what happens was um, <laughs> they, they, they talk to kids and then they, um, it, they use a math class. That's probably the most popular study. So there's a math class. There are youth um, students in a math class. One group is consistently, you know, they're, they're all advanced. They're all getting A's. One group, when the result turns out well, is being uh, reinforced things like, uh, hey, nice job. You must have really studied hard for that. You know what I mean? You must have really uh, way, to, way to take advantage of the extra lunchtime hours or whatever it might have been. Nice job. The other group was told very simply, like, not, way to go. You, you're so smart. Like, look what you've done. You've done it again. Another A. Great job. And that kind of, you know, that taps into uh, some, some other issues I have with the way we look at things. But anyway, th- that's the split of the study. Great job. Your process was sound or great job. You're super talented. Like in my terms, that's not hers. Anyway, eventually they're confronted with like an unpassable test. So everybody fails, right? You just, it's not a winnable thing. Um, and the people, you know, in, in those two groups, 
the way that they react is so starkly different. And you can already imagine sort of the punchline, right? If you think you're, um, if you, if you're in that, uh, congratulations, you adhere to the process, you worked hard type group, you hit an unwinnable task on the back end of it. You're like, shoot, did I study enough? Like, did I, maybe I didn't look at that theorem enough. Maybe I didn't take advantage of the extra office hours, whatever. Whereas the other group starts to question themselves, right? They're like, Fuck, maybe I'm not as talented as they said. Right. And, th and that you talk about language. Now the self-talk in that splinters in all sorts of toxic directions. Like maybe you're not good enough. That has a real spiral on the way you approach the next homework assignment or whatever. Maybe my teacher was wrong. All these people I trust in my life told me I was talented and I'm, and I'm not, are they lying to me? You know what I mean? Um, so the way that we frame things, the language um, we use to frame things is essential to moving people, even in that small instance toward a growth mindset um, instead of what they call fixed mindset. Um, which is something that you can't really do anything about. So, so the idea of basically empowering, I mean, um, so, uh, I did go to a, you know, not nearly as cool a school as Harvard, but I did go to this cool, a school called Berkeley, which, uh, I ironically, when I, I think I've told these guys a story, but when I was a senior in high school, I got all these scholarship offers and I got a phone call from Harvard and the coach was like, Hey, I'm the coach from Harvard. And we want to talk to you about maybe coming here and going to school and playing some football. And I thought the guy said Harbor, which is a junior college down the street from my house. And I'm like, I'm not going to fucking junior college. I got scholarship offers. And the guy's like, no. Harvard. And I'm like, you mean like Harvard, Harvard, like in Massachusetts with the smart people. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a football coach from Idaho. I don't know shit about this, but I just know I need to get some people in here. And I asked yeah. him, I'm like, well, do you guys give scholarships? And he's like, no, we give financial aid. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, so you'd have to apply for it. I'm like, wow, my dad's a lawyer and he's, uh, you know, pretty successful. And he's like, yeah, I don't think you're going to get helped out with this one. So I talked to my dad and I was like, dad, uh, uh, Harvard said that I could go there. My dad's like, oh, really? Like scholarships? I'm like, no. And he's like, well, UC Berkeley's pretty good too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so at, at, uh, at Berkeley, but as a, um, in my master's work in education, uh, yeah. a big part of one of the class was, uh, you know, how to frame things in such a way mm -hmm. that you create bridges instead of, you know, creating walls and barriers. And I totally. think like that piece of like, you know, and you can do it intentionally, but like how you frame stuff. And then also, you know, I think we had like three different kids that, that we would look at and say, you know, are they the, uh, uh pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I'm just ad libbing here. Cause I can't remember sure. how, it, you know, we did, but it was like the pull yourself up by your bootstrap kid, the kid that's going to just do everything on his own. Cause he wants to be successful. The kid who wants to succeed because you want him to succeed. And then the kid that wants to succeed within spite of you. So like, mm -hmm. and then all of those had their mere opposites. And it was, uh, it was pretty fascinating, you know, down to the point of saying, you know, being able to come in and analyze and figure out which kid they are, and then being able to right. figure out like how you frame stuff, how you interact, because, you know, the goal is never to curb stomp everybody. So, which is funny because then you get into situations after I took that and you're like, holy shit, uh, I had this exact teacher do this to me. And then you start kind of playing it off of these personal things. And then you wonder why, you know, why that didn't negatively affect me or why that piece of like negative reinforcement allowed me to, you know, project and move forward. So pretty fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah, it absolutely is. We, um, yeah. So at what we call the Berkeley of the East, um, that is, <laughs> that's um, true. It, it is, it's just a major factor. Cause what you're trying to do is like, it's really hard to batch process kids, right? Like you, it's hard to get an absolute, like this is your character trait. This is who you are, you know, but um, having some uh, scale or, or language to, to filter people through seems like a super important team. And uh, uh, text, I don't know if it's an important time, uh, an opportune time to talk about the motivation scale, but that might be kind of what, um, go for it. Let's roll, man. I love it. It's your um, show. Yeah. But okay, fair enough. Well, and, and, cause that's kind of what it is. John is like, uh, but this one is, 
more for um, probably for a coach or an educator to be self-reflective. So we, we came up with a, a zero through five scale. Uh, zero was essentially, and we're talking about motivation, motivation as being one of the core drivers of our role as coaches and educators. Um, essentially, the reason we think motivation is so important uh, is because like we're, we're asking people to do things they wouldn't normally do. Uh, we have to light the light at the end of the tunnel if we're going to have people walk down the freaking tunnel. So motivation is essential. Um, finding out what motivates people could, could be its own section of the talk. But essentially, once you start to do that, then you get to the self-reflective state of like, how good am I at this? Zero is no motivation, no action, whatever. Um, one is what I think a lot of people um, have become pretty good at is move, getting people up and moving in a positive direction. Two is essentially getting people moving in that positive direction with actionable steps, right? Like, okay, fine. I want to take care of my nutrition, but what exactly does that look like? What kind of decisions should I make if this is my goal? Um, three is, you know, it's just advancing at every level, uh, positive direction with actionable steps and some kind of support support means and support is not like a, I don't want that to sound like a soft term that could be holding people in check. That could be curb stopping, stopping if the situation calls for it. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? But some kind of accountability stopping. supporting people. curb stopping provisions. Right? Yeah. 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 With yeah. any sort of motivation. Structure. Well, I mean, that's really the high school football uh, coach standard fucking operating procedure is the fucking curb stomp at all times. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you ever remember? And, and, you know, as, as high school athletes, you know, as we're all sitting here, I can't really remember ever getting any form of positive feedback mm -hmm. from any football coach that I had in Naperville was mostly pizza parties, pool parties, <laughs> trophies, uh, trophies, state mark. Our team slogan was my teammates are great. Uh, we had a fucking, <laughs> is this real? Yeah. Dude, I, uh, uh, bogey, dude, I, I didn't have that. I mean, I had Gary Kimbrell who, uh, uh, was like a Marine drill sergeant, I think, like no, one time lose his mind, kick us off of the field. And I think he punched me in the face on the way out and said, you know, like, I, I, like. So during during conditioning, the offense, well, there was a pretty big dichotomy. Like that was how the offense, the offense treatment. They, they would conditioning time would roll up. They'd sit in a powwow and Joe, like smoke and Joe Bungie would hold court and everybody would be laughing. And then, John, you're right. Then our side of the fucking ball, it was just. <laughs> <laughs> curb stomp every uh, fucking Monday. I, I got a uh, size nine boot up your ass a lot. <laughs> uh, I, well, ironically, so Gary Kimbrell was our head coach. Uh, he was about five foot five and uh, he was um, fucking hated me for whatever reason. Uh, and then we had an offensive line coach guy named Dwayne Lyons, who was a pretty famous old time Texan and uh, was kind of famous here in Texas for coaching. And he was our offensive line coach. And for some fucking reason, he believed in me. And he was like, I don't know how it's going to happen, but you're going to be pretty good at this stuff. And, mm -hmm. he, and I was like, really? And he's like, I just don't know how it's going to happen. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was what like, coach? Uh, yeah, I was like, uh, <laughs> and then I remember when I started getting scholarship offers and they were like, you know, those scholarship offers really ain't happening because you're any good at football. It's because you're like six, four, like two forty. And they were mm -hmm. like, you know, their idea is you can't, you know, coach size. So then they were like, you know, you're just getting these scholarship offers because you're fucking big. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, well, good. Fuck them. I'm getting a scholarship. You know where I'm going to college, Berkeley, motherfucker. You know where you're going? nowhere where are you going uh, so i mean like uh, but uh, but here was the thing like i um i i learned pretty early on that if i identified my like who i was in character and like i i like basically like uh, i couldn't use their reflection for me to gauge myself 
So mm-hmm. you have a, let's say a guy in his late forties, early fifties, who's a high school coach, who's making, you know, $32,000 a year. That's driving a 15 year old car who, uh, you know, has a lot of, I mean, obviously he hasn't fucking crushed it the way he thought he was. If you're an assistant, you know, and this is no rip on football players or football coaches or whatever. But the way I looked at it is a lot of the, our coaches, like they probably, this isn't the road that they had designed for themselves. They're not a, you know, Harvard, you know, neuroscience guy who wants to come in and basically like alter the trajectory of kids and like do this like good athlete project who has this like, you know, desire to uh, in better the world and leave it in a better place through athletics. Right. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, probably high school coaches that felt slighted or this wasn't what they had. And I remember thinking like, uh, I can't let their, um, you know, trials and tribulations and failures and, you know, whatever they think, I can't let them project that shit on me because uh, I have my whole life in front of me. And if I let them define me, then effectively they're fucking pulling me down in who they are. Hence, we had a football coach who was, I think, our linebackers coach, who was an alcoholic, get so fucked up. Uh, before the game, he was walking around and basically like trying to motivate people and headbutted the dude with a helmet on and knocked himself unconscious. That's didn't nasty. didn't go out and we basically had to load him on the bus because he didn't wake up. He was fucking that piss drunk. And uh, I remember we went through a sobriety checkpoint and our head coach was like, well, good thing Jim's not driving. And uh, But like, like that to me is like... Um, that's a population. Of well, it, yeah. it is like, like there's a lot of people that are like, you know, uh, I didn't attain what I wanted. So I'm just going to do this or, you know, whatever. And they're still bitter, whatnot. So like well, I had people like that and I didn't want, and I remember at like 17, 16, 17 years old being like, uh, I don't think that these guys should be the barometer for my success. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking that. And then like when they told me, they're like, oh, the only reason that you got a scholarship is because you're six, four and pretty big and your brothers played football. And I remember being like, yeah, I'm not going to really buy into that, and I'm going to go to college and see how I do. And then I turned out to be pretty good, so obviously I proved them wrong. But um, how many kids don't think like that? And like, how do you Most empower are not these that kids? Aware. Well, 16. but but how like uh, how how do we make kids more self-aware? Totally. Uh, this is something like that. Um, you know, when we you know when we were rapping a little bit before about what you're doing, I'm like, you know, here's a guy who has this you know good athlete project, who obviously has the chops, you know, in terms of the education and a massive you know pool of kids to work with. So mm-hmm. I imagine like, and this is like the multi-million dollar question: How do you empower the kids to be self-aware for them to take ownership of what's in front of them at a young age, so that they can almost be the steward of their own ship? John, I am so glad you asked because I have an answer. I hope it's worth multiple million. Yes, bring it out. Um, okay, so essentially it's it's the character by design model. I, we can talk more about the motivation scale later. There's two other scales or two other levels in a, in, a, in a way to turn it in the opposite direction, which we can talk about. But to answer that question specifically, um, we have something, our, our core way of interacting with a group, whether it's a team, um, group of students or professional development is we host a workshop called character by design. Um, and the way in the way that workshop starts is we just ask people what they want. We, um, we say, usually that comes out to something relatively superficial related to like a championship or a, or a personal goal, which is, which is fine. We want honestly, like the, like the only way to be wrong in these workshops is to, for whatever reason, tell us what we want to hear and not be totally honest. You want to win a championship? Fantastic. We put it at the, po- uh, at the top of our, uh, our build. And then we start to build down. And what we do is we ask very simple questions. We, uh, we do this, um, 
I won't go through the, all the nuts and bolts of the workshop, but we essentially crowdsource uh, from an individual group. We don't make a lot of assumptions. We crowdsource from a group um, how they think they can get to this thing. So level one, say is a championship. Uh, in order to get through a championship, if you're at Naperville Central Red Hawk, you've got to get through New Trier. These are like the essentials. Um, if you, uh, in order to get through New Trier, you've got to be... Um, do your best to be bigger and stronger and faster than those guys in order to do that. You know, we, and we do this build out, right. And it's, it's somewhat laborious, but it's totally worth it because eventually we get down to these small actionable behaviors, right? You want to be strong. You got to lift, you got to recover from that lift. You got to take care of your, what, all the stuff that we've been talking about. And then we get to like the minute details. So for example, we worked with a team this fall. One of their actionable uh, things was at nine o'clock at night, they set an alarm on their phone. That alarm said championship. That's it. And then they started their sleep routine, right? So their actionable behavior, it started there. And what we do, what we try to do is we try to come out of these workshops with no more than 10 self-created, highly actionable behaviors. Um, and then we just judge for compliance. We rate on compliance. You know what I mean? And the question we say to kids is like, listen, does your behavior match your goal? You said, this is what you want. We all talked it through. You said, this is how you're going to get there. And then what's your level of compliance in those things? So you just, and then, and then we ask for self-reference. Does your, does your process um, match your purpose? Does your behavior match your goal? I'm not telling you, 17-year-old, not to drink, but whatever. But you said that this was a standard of your team, you know? So you, and, and John, that, to answer the question, that's what we're doing. Like we are forcing little moments of self-reflection and then real, and then kind of holding people accountable to those. So it's reflection in the abstracts. So it's basically the, uh, like the crawl, walk, run idea that, Hey, if we can give them small digestible pieces, then effectively we can, you know, like the chunking deal, like, you know, you can build upon it. So offering them like almost like teaching them self-reflection in small ways that they can see the counterpoint, because sometimes the bigger, goal seems almost insurmountable. Oh, yeah. Like for me, like that bigger goal was just, uh, I want to go to college. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like, I, uh, you know, like I figured that was the fastest way. Like I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be like my dad and like my brothers and kind of go on this deal. And I figured like, wow, I can get a scholarship to go play football and go to this great university that know that, you know, our valedictorian didn't get into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like it, it's always interesting too. And when, when people are talking and you're trying to, you know, almost look for what the person's saying in your own development so that you can have some kind of, you know, you know, we fail, we say we fail at the majors or we fail at the margins of our own experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly thinking like, okay, if I can extend out my experience, but I mean, it's a, it's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting thought. Like if you can allow kids to have some self-realization on small tasks. Yeah. And that's what it is. And and that's for sure. And it's a success on small tasks. And it's also, um, they're having success in a process that they built. We went out to a school um, just outside in San Mateo County, California. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, we went out to a school. Uh, I told this story over the weekend text, but we went oh, out to What was the name of the school? San Mateo? I, I don't know if I can say that. Oh, it, was um, it a Catholic school? It was a charter school. Oh, a charter school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and, and I say, I don't know if I can say that because there's some criticism coming. Um, so we went out to a, we went out to a school um, and they brought us in to work with 30 of their, of their most troubled kids. Um, all kids who'd been dog-eared for disciplinary issues. Um, so we arrive, uh, I told this story, they, they, the first couple kids walked up there, we're high five and they're like, Oh, Hey, we heard you play football. They're asking questions like that. All their counterparts start showing up. All of a sudden we got 30 of the rowdiest kids in the school and they're like, Oh shit, are you guys cops? 
Like they thought that's, they thought they were in big time trouble. Anyway, we take these kids and we move them through the streets of San Mateo County uh, to a YMCA. Um, it's, it's a freaking, it's a mile away. They're cutting through back roads. We're like, what did we get ourselves into? We show up at the YMCA. We don't think we're going to be able to put anything in these guys' heads. They're, they're just not going to listen to us. Uh, until we sat down, got to the board and asked them a very specific question that they'd never heard before. And that was, what do you want? So all of a sudden, everything from there on out, we start working toward like what they want. It's a question they've never been asked before. Every, you know, all their interaction with teachers is sit down and shut up and this is the way we do it. Um, but we ask these kids what they want. Then we let them help design the process and the actionable steps. So not only is it, is it totally digestible in like what an adolescent is capable of following through on, but it's things that they've come up with. That level of ownership is not something um, they see very often. Is this something that could work? Um, I'm just thinking with like, I mean, you're talking to adolescents more like, you know, high school, uh, high school age kids. But what about like a demographic of like 18 to 25 year old, uh, you know, kids that are either just out, either didn't go to college or just out of college that are in their kind of first uh, endeavor, their first, you know, let's say their first bite of the apple, their first cut at the you know home base that are still yep. trying to find their way. Because I mean, you know, you guys can think of your first job or, you know, what you first did out of college. I mean, I, I, I was going back and thinking about like, you know, the crappy jobs I had in college or even in high school and thinking like, um, this isn't what I want to do in this world. So then, you know, you get into a situation and, um, you know, is there ever a point like all of a sudden, like the, you know, bringing these actual items, you know, is there a point at which, uh, the person's too old? Like, uh, you know, like these small little pieces, like the small victories aren't enough or is it something that, that you can action through 60 years old? That's a really good question um, because there is some cognitive science to suggest that, yeah, adult learners are way different, right? You're usually pretty locked into your behaviors. Um, and I think sadly at that, when you get really embedded in your habits and behaviors, it takes a jolt to make you reconsider more often than not. Um, does that you sound can, right? Yeah. You can, I mean, think of uh, old Tom Dye. I mean, talk about a man setting his behavior Oh. And he's been jolted multiple fucking times. Well, and, and I, other guys like that, you know? It's yeah, just- I mean, I um, the one thing I fear most in this world is becoming um, so rigid that I can't change, which mm-hmm. is something that I've seen. Old with, salty John Wellborn? No, it'll never happen. All right. So uh, we're the salt police. Okay, <laughs> but uh, but like for example, my dad, who's eighty, um, my old neighbor, who's in, who's sixty, who uh, these people are so set within like their ways that like anything that deviates outside of that, like well. I like my bed. Yeah. So therefore I can't get in there. Yeah. I mean the same thing. Like they fall within these routines. Like my parents, uh, bought their home when my dad was 27 and my mom was 25 and he's 80 now. So they've lived in the same home for 50 plus years. Uh, like he's driven the same way office, everything. I mean, just fall within these patterns to the point where like, this is the, like, this is what their comfort is. This is how their day goes in this routine. And I always worry that like, uh, the day that, uh, that routine becomes so important to me that I can't like, like the thought of leaving for a few days and going somewhere causes such anxiety that I become so rigid. Yeah. And I wonder like, uh, 
Yeah. Some people don't view that as bad. I view that as the beginning of death because uh, no, a hundred percent like, yeah. like the day that I'm fearful to go outside my normal routine, because this is all I've known means that I haven't added enough variety and, uh, um, you know, uh, change into my routine that I'm mm -hmm. so stressed. I mean, it's like, it's like sitting down like a, you know, I can't imagine like Luke always talks about working at Navistar the thought of like having to go to that cubicle and do that job for the next 40 years of your life. Uh, nope. yeah, I mean, probably, nope. yeah, Luke Paul, I mean, anxiety, but how many people are just like, well, this is how it's supposed to be. But we go back to growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And then, um, a book. So Jim, I have read the book and actually, um, mm -hmm. one of Luke's buddies suggested it to me, not knowing that I read it. And, um, well, that mm -hmm, is the challenge. Mm -hmm, wow. No, yeah. I'm just, well, I'm, I, I haven't heard the one up in a long time from old Tax <laughs> McQuilkin. Yeah. Well, you know, guy, just give the guy, give the guy a point. We're referencing. It's been a while. <laughs> He's the new tree of the group. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him. I, 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 I think he's going to punch you in the face. No, <laughs> but then we move up the pyramid. Perfect timing <laughs> into motivation. So we, this is the, essentially the peak. It's not the, it's not the full pyramid, but this is the peak. Yep. And during your presentation, you went to motivation before those side pillars. Um, so mm -hmm. I guess let's talk about the peak and then maybe get into those, those side pillars that kind of set up yeah. the base and support. Totally. Yeah. So, so, um, it, it actually this lines pretty well. So if you think you got it right, um, you run the risk of becoming comfortable, right? Um, whether that's like being in the same house for 60 years or whatever it might be, or whether it's getting so good at, at all those habits. Like if you, if you have exercise, nutrition, rest, and you are comfortable in your relationships and all that stuff there, you know, comfort, I, you know, I, Maybe comfort is death to a point because if nothing else, it almost guarantees that there won't be growth, if that makes sense. So the next step for the educator is taking people out of that, you know, assuring the base of the pyramid is sound and then ushering people on to um, the higher levels of performance. So our, our side pillars, you put mindfulness and morality. Mm -hmm. So what is the connection between these two and why are they so important for the peak of the pyramid motivation? Yeah, because, well, you know why? Because um, it's like we talked about because motivation can go in a negative direction too. Like you can be motivated to rob a fucking bank. Like you, like there are motivation. You don't have to be pure in your motivation, right? Um, so we want to make sure the two things we mentioned, okay, so mindfulness and we distinguish this. Listen, if you want to do... Zen Buddhist, uh, Lotus position, whatever, adhere to that. Great. That's not really what we're talking about when we come, when we talk about mindfulness though. It's more of like a conscientious observation of what's going on. It's like looking without judgment at things. So, um, I, I want to be diligent about my nutrition. You have to look mindfully at the decisions. You have to be mindful about the decisions you're making, uh, and then on the nutrition scale, et cetera, et cetera. Mindful about the kind of relationships you're developing and having. And then that is an increasing level of mindfulness uh, as the higher performance comes into play. Well, don't, I mean, uh, yeah. don't, don't kids look at, um, I, and I always think about, um, you know, like perception and like, you know, like a kid's watch. So for example, like I think with morality, it's kind of an interesting thought. Like why is it that, that one kid would uh, decide to go rob a bank or do something and one kid wouldn't, e even though they were raised in the same household? I mean, this is, uh, you know, my other brother is a lawyer and I remember he has a, he has a client and he was like, you know, the one kid was like, uh, you know, 
white supremacist gangs murder this whole deal and then the other and he's like and his brother is a uh, really like high-end like doctor who's married with kids and the whole deal i mean like two polar opposites raised mm-hmm. in the same household you know what about the morality pushes one one the other way and uh you know that's i think the age-old question like um yeah. like how do you how do you sit back and kind of almost create mm-hmm. like the moral picture that you want them to look at to hopefully be the, uh, you know, the influence upon? Yeah, totally. So in part of our definition of morality includes not making too many broad sweeping claims on like, this is moral. That's not, you know what I mean? In fact, I think that's where a lot of interventions, um, fall short is like, you think, you know, what absolute right is. And the only way to kind of guarantee that you're wrong is to, trick yourself into thinking, you know, what absolute right is you're fucking, you're wrong. Um, don't paint yourself in that kind of corner. So, but, um, considering what might be moral behavior or not, like that's essential. And we talk, when we go into those character by design workshops, that's, that's where we get into it. So like we have to, okay, we have that super ornate goal. We have the championship goal. We've got the sub tiers and then we've got all those behaviors below it. And I think it's our job as coaches and facilitators to make sure that um, once you draw the line between like sort of superficial performance-based goals and um, like lifestyle habits, that we are facilitating an environment, creating an environment where the stuff that happens from that line and below uh, are all positive and for like the communal good in some way or other. And the truth is like, we're just doing our best at it too. You know what I mean? Like there, I, I, I would be really it could be a long, I know you've got a background in rhetoric, John, and you guys, Luke text, you guys are very thoughtful. You could go on and on about like the moral right. Um, I don't think that's our job though. Um, I, I think, uh, like going back to self-reflection, considering the impact that your actions are going to have on other people, right. At least being super well considered about the behavior choices you have, what does making this decision potentially do to, uh, your teammate, your neighbor, your friend, whatever. I mean, it goes back to the idea of be the change, you know, like be the person. Like I remember, um, this is kind of ironic. I don't know if I've told you guys a story, but, uh, Roth made me go to confession. Did I ever tell you this? So like I, I did a talk about it, but, um, so Roth and I go to confession and I got to sit down with the priest and I told him, I was like, yo man, like I started kind of going into all the things that I needed to confess about. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't need to hear all of this stuff. And I'm like, you sure? Cause I want to tell you. And he goes, no, 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 I'm good. Uh, I just want to know that like, do you feel bad or do you feel that, you know, you want absolution for what you did? And I was like, honestly, no. Like, I don't think that what I did, even though your moral barometer says that I probably didn't act within the faith, um, mm-hmm. I don't really view as what I did wrong. And the guy kind of went through and we kind of dialogued and he's like, you know, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I just want you to think about being the type of person you want to bring into your life. And I thought that was uh, yeah. always a, a really impactful thing. Um, the idea of like, uh, you know, and I find the irony of that of sitting at a Catholic church, which uh, if you know the history of the Catholic church, I mean, just uh, like, like more, uh, like more moral uh, discretions and pro- I mean, like just, just a lot of irony. And even sure. when, and I even said it to the guy, I'm like, you know, I find it so ironic that I'm sitting in, you know, your guy's definition of the house of the Lord, you know, and I can go through like the Spanish inquisition and I can go through all these different <laughs> points within the Catholic religion that have yeah. done nothing but, uh, destroy murder, rape, pillage and, and hurt the weak and the innocent. Um, and kind of went through it. And then of course, like the guy at that point is like, uh, I can't speak to all that stuff, Time's but up. yeah, uh, yeah. He's like, I can't speak to that yeah. stuff. But what I'm going to say is that, you know, um, man's not perfect. 
uh, you know, so, and, and I just, it was just a super interesting conversation. And the guy just yeah. basically was like, man, if you can take anything away from this, and I'm not saying that anything anybody's done right here, just be the type of person you want to bring into your life. And I kind of put it into a talk called like, you know, be the change. And so mm -hmm. I think for, uh, for a lot of people, especially for kids, morality, they're always looking for somebody like, well, you know, um, uh, I'm not going to be a good person because my mom cheated on my dad. And, uh, you know, that's the barometer I know. So and then therefore I'm going to do the same because that's what they did instead of mm -hmm. looking at it like, um, you know, that's what that person did. And that might not be the best way to proceed. But then that comes down to the, the ability for a, a, a younger kid to have some form of self-awareness or self-reflection mm -hmm. or just uh, a greater understanding of these things. And so I think all of these things, whether it be morality, uh, success or whatnot, goes back to like the age old, um, if you can, you know, like the, the self-awareness piece to be able to mm -hmm. want and to do these things and set yourself up in such a way that as you move forward in this thing called life, that you start, you know, knocking down those dominoes. Totally. And, that's exactly uh, right. And, and the things that you just mentioned, that's kind of where we want to enter because like, th listen, we, the good athlete project is an example or, or myself and the people I work with, we're not the first people to think that maybe, um, sports are a good place to install character values or things that might transition you into uh, a, a more fruitful life, whatever. Um, but the way that we're looking at it, I think is fairly unique. Like there are, um, you know, I, we have, there's no religious bend to what we're doing. We're not assuming a moral correctness in any kind of way. We're just like, we want to take the good kind of works in both ways. We want to take people who want to be good athletes, who are, who are all about it. We've got this natural hook, this natural motivation. And within the training and push toward that, make sure that they can also be good people, right? And they are going to essentially invent the definition of that, right? Try not to step on the opportunity of anyone else along the way, and then just kind of work toward being the best version of themselves. Um, one of the reasons... Go ahead, Tex. No, was, uh, I did during your presentation, and you brought up a, a subject, and I wanted to get John's opinion on it, and what better place than here and now. It was, uh, you said, <coughs> excuse me, sports don't teach life lessons, or a slide up there, um, yep. just calling that out. So I want to, if, if we have an opportune time, to kind of get into that. So your take on that, and then kind of learn John's perspective. Yeah, so I, I, I hate that. <laughs> comment. You know, I like, I get the intention. I love the idea. And I think people are really, um, thrown when they first hear me say that, but like, no sports do not teach life lessons. I like, if I learned anything from sports, it was like playing football didn't make, make me a better human being. Right. But the lessons I learned within it might have, right. Sports don't teach life lessons. Sports provide a platform for intentional teachers and coaches to teach life lessons, but it's got to be intentional. And the reason I, I dislike it so much is because to go on the cliche of sports teach life lessons, like that takes some onus off of you as an educator, right? It's not just going to happen because you put them out there and, and yell at them or whatever. You've got to be intentional about these things. Let me also be clear though. I, I want to make sure we don't get painted in the wrong light. Like, He's splitting hairs. He's using a, uh, he's using the, the old, um, who's our buddy who said, uh, nobody should squat. Um, Boyle. Yeah. Mike Boyle saying that and everybody was up in arms. Then you talk to him. He's like, ah, I said that, you know, maybe when you're dealing with performance-based athletes that have a lot of mileage, maybe doing a Bulgarian split squat might be more beneficial to them than doing a barbell back squat. And mm. I was like, but if he had said that, nobody would have listened. But because he said the squat is dead, nobody should do it. 
all of a sudden it fucking got people up in arms and got people to look. So it, by making that claim, and I think his claim, what he's doing is he's splitting hairs. He's not saying that sports don't teach life lessons. He's just saying just merely just going and doing the sport isn't going to teach you life lessons. Because I'll, right. I'll tell you this, uh, I learned more about life playing football than I did anywhere else. Me too. In terms of Me like, like, like the oh. thought of like, hey, if, if you get up every day and you go put your pads on and you walk out there, even though you don't want to fucking be there and you warm up and you get into it, like... That's all you I mean, like. That's all I got to do. I just got to warm up and get rocking, even on the days I don't want to be there. But as long as I show up and put my pads on, I'm going to give myself the best chance, you know. Totally. Or, or or the idea of um, I told a guy the other day I played next to a guy I didn't really like, um, but we had a vested interest in in being successful, kicking ass, and making money. So therefore, I was able to put my own, uh, you know like my own personal feelings aside to go do this job. And so like that showed me that like, I don't always have to like all the people that I work with as long as we have a cohesive understanding of where we're going and how we get there. Uh, the other one of like working in small groups that, uh, you know, not everybody gets to be the leader at all points. In certain points you get to be an Indian, some points you got to get a chief, but as long as everybody knows and like realizes that like, you know, when it comes to certain things, like Luke's the chief, Tex can be the chief, I can be the chief and it all goes into, you know, however you work. But the problem comes down to when you deal with somebody that can't, that always has to be the person in charge, that always has to be the one, well, it's got to be my idea. Or can't be a chief. Or can't, or, or the people that, that don't want to be a chief that are always just, well, I just tell me what to do all the time. So, yeah. uh, you know, like that's the, uh, you know, in sport, like you have all of these things like, you know, perseverance, hard work. Um, you know, I remember watching uh, a practice in college where there was a big melee fight and uh, a few guys didn't get into it. And we went back and watched the film. And as we were watching the film of the fight, all of a sudden my coach stops it and goes up and circles the dudes that aren't in the fight. Well, and uh, yeah. I, I literally those guys uh, butchered them. I think the one guy was kicked off. I mean, like like this was like a full sale burn down that these people will never, ever, ever set foot on a football field again for the mere okay. point that they did not have their teammates back their offense line. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that type of shit where I was like, OK, if there's ever a fight I, and I'm going to make sure I'm right in the fucking middle of it, because if I'm not, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm going to realize yeah. and I'm going to accept my fate of not being kicked off the team like all totally. all. All of these things that I learned playing football, I don't know if I would have learned them anywhere else. Totally. But you just kind of proved my point, though, because like those guys standing on the sideline of the fight, they don't learn that lesson unless they are somehow held accountable by the coach. Right. So so the lessons like have to be illuminated. Right. You are certainly involved in a really powerful situation and you are learning some kind of life lesson. Maybe if that lesson is only to get up and go to work. Um, but the truth is not everyone even does that. Right. Like I, like it is very easy to can, uh, imagine a scenario where you've got a football team and half the kids are, you say you're in a, um, an environment where the opportunity is very low. Maybe it's an impoverished area of a, of a city like Chicago. Right. And literally just getting people to practice, um, is, is a huge hurdle, right? Without the teachers and coaches working in that environment to structure it so that you are actually getting people to practice. And then, um, the life lessons are actually acknowledged, um, framed and then transferred into the rest of people's lives. Like that's the art of coaching to a point, right? To make sure that you are cultivators of an environment. You are your, your teachers, you are teaching, um, and that's why I make that distinction is because I want to, like I said, we do a lot of professional development. I never want to take a thumb off coaches. I am, uh, you, you know, it, it's an underpaid, uh, potentially undervalued profession. Um, but it's like, 
one of the most important ones that exists. The ownership needs to be on coaches. It, basketball is not going to do this alone. But you, with a, you know, on a basketball court with a bunch of kids who love basketball, might have an incredible impact. So I, I think it needs to be, um, I think, just considered in that way. No, it's, um, I mean, that's true. I mean, just, just throwing somebody in there for a sport for them to teach a life lesson, like, hey, go play basketball, you'll learn something about yourself. Like, what are you going to learn? Like, but I mean, we've seen this. Can I jump in? Yeah, go, uh, go. We've seen this roll up in the CrossFit gym, right? In being a CrossFit coach, you have that pseudo coach team mentality where there's some sort of plasticity in the individual who shows up whose life is miserable, right? Whether they're out of shape or they're, they're in shape and fucking work sucks, but they come in and they join this team environment and there's the, the lead and the lead is doing this back in the day, you know, 2007, 2008. Well, but, but I mean, you're talking about community, which, yes. which is, but, is it, if, uh, if you read the book mm -hmm. Tribes or you look sure, at anything. Sure. Yeah, 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 but what I'm getting at is it's not the CrossFit workout that's teaching them the lessons. Yeah. It's the whole, and I guess to use your term, Jim, it's the platform created by the micro gym with the leader and community mm -hmm. that teaches the life lessons, right? And there's people, there, there are people who, in our gym, when I was working back in Naperville, uh, they never fucking played any sort of team sports growing up. You know what I mean? This was their one shot at like, yeah. whoa, uh, mutual accountability environment, one leader. The leader has an opportunity to influence change on my behavior, you know? And then motivation kicks in inside, outside of the gym, and then that carries over, and they, they build their playbook for success, and then next thing you know, they're getting their promotion, or they're dating the yeah. fucking girl of their dreams, or whatever the fuck you know, you empower people mm -hmm. to do as a coach at a micro gym. Well, I mean, uh, we see it on Train Heroic. I made a comment the other day that one of the guys on Johnny Wad was like, hey, uh, I'm kind of, you know, I've been doing this for a year. I kind of am a little burned out. I want to try something else. And literally, like, 20 dudes came in and were, like, fucking curb stomping him. Like, dude, I can't <laughs> believe you're fucking leaving me. And, like, just went through this whole thing. And the guy's like, I'm just going to go do Jack Street. I just want to change up the program. I'm not leaving. I'm not canceling. I'm going to pay for both of them so I can come over here and talk. You guys are my friends. I'm not leaving. And people act did fucking like their feelings are hurt and I was like this is awesome yeah, we have yeah. a point yeah. where we've reached actual accountability on an internet uh, training site like you know through our deal on train heroic with these feeds where people are like you can't leave. I gauge my performance off of you. What am I going to do? Yeah, but right. you, were, you know, and, and I said, I was like, I never thought this was going to happen. And I fucking love intent, it. But that was the intent from day one, you know, and that's why the feed environment hits. And that's why the narratives are there. And I hope that's not like a bad thing. But no, I, I think I think any time, whether it and, you know, you can uh, um, disagree or agree. But I think any time that interaction happens, whether it be good or bad in is, is a positive in a lot of ways. Like, like kind of like I, I look at it like Vinny, uh, who's my dog. Uh, it doesn't matter. Right. Like, so, so Vinny is happy as long as he's getting some attention. It might look like my son went over with his like toy hammer and was smashing him in the face. Mm -hmm. Vinny was so happy that his tail was going that, that cash was over there hitting him with his hammer. And then I was over there like petting him. He was ready to explode. The only point he said is when something isn't involving him. So if there's like, I, I firmly believe I could like sit there, like tie the dog up and like kick him all day. And he would still be so excited to be like, thank you for touching me. He's just yeah. It, yeah. like, but like, I, I don't know if, if that interaction is bad, but I think the problem comes down to that. You can't, if the majority of your social interaction involves internet, like some form of like, 
uh, you know, online kind of deal. Like, I'm really nervous about that piece. But if if we tie back in the levels of motivation, this gets into kind of where we left off before, where it's actionable steps, support from your community, and then understanding. Mm-hmm. And and so that could be the 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 coaching side of things, or it could be the community. But they're all uh, providing empathy for one another towards the goal, which you know, fitness or freaking getting jacked on Jack Street, or you know, in in Luke's just, example of the just micro doing the salty wad on Johnny Wad, mm-hmm. just wad hotter than me, bro. Yeah, that's understanding. Just yeah, they're so salty. salty. They're just blowing everywhere. <laughs> We're talking about working out, right? Yeah. yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, hold on. We can't talk about this anymore. It's, it's yeah. bad for... That's, no, I text, I think that's exactly right. It's like, um, it's answering the why question, right? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I making these decisions? Um, it's being, it's all going back to being self-reflective because the ultimate goal for me, like there was a time in my life when I was like borderline obsessed with football. And that's just the truth. I was, um, I was not talented enough to play with the guys like John did, but, um, indoor football went over to Europe for a little while and I was obsessed. Like I was, I was trying to be as good as I could be at this thing. And I've recognized for sure that if I wasn't able to trans, like the, the experience was amazing on its own, but it was the transfer of the lessons that I learned within that experience to other areas of my life that made the, made the situation like an all time thing, you know, completely life changing. Did, did you really give over like to the point where uh, you just like sold your soul to it? Like, this is, this is what I love and I'm willing to admit that to everybody. And like, like, like this is what defines me. Uh, I had a moment close to that. I was, uh, I was sitting in, I, I'm telling you, it's funny you say it. Cause I remember it exactly. Uh, I was sitting in a room in our room in uh, Valencia, Spain, watching the wrestler. You remember that movie? Uh-huh. And then yeah, I was yeah. like, Mickey Rourke. And I'm like, it got to the end of the movie and I'm like, I think I have a lot to offer the world, but I could see myself traveling the world playing football in my whatever, into my like 40s or whatever, and this is how I go. And it wouldn't be a terrible existence, you know, especially when he's coming off the ropes at the end of the movie. Um, I was, I mean, at times, I was pretty open to that idea. Yeah, I, I always had this weird deal where... Um uh, because NFL and that, that level of playing football is so fleeting and can be taken from you at any, at any point, and then all of a sudden you don't yep. get to do it anymore, that uh, I always had this idea in my head that if I never really admitted to myself that I liked it, when it ended, I'd be okay. And it was a 100% mm-hmm. defense mechanism. I mean, probably people do it all the time with, like, dating. It's like, well, if I don't really like this person, if they break up with me, I'll be fine. Because if I really fucking like them and they break up with me, I'm going to be fucking shattered. And so when I went and played football, like people be like, oh, I'll be like, oh, it's okay. It's not bad. Yeah. You know, and I, and I would never admit it even. And, uh, I never really like even liked the game of football in terms of like what, you know, in the, in the global sense, what I just really liked was the one-on-one combat piece. Mm-hmm. And so like I, you know, and the way that I kind of papered that was just off of the idea that, uh, if I allowed wins and losses to define me, then you know what? Now all of a sudden I'm allowing people that don't have a vested interest in me or don't take this as serious as or haven't trained as hard. Now all of a sudden what those fucking schlubs did, now it can like affect my personality. And I remember Tony Gonzalez like after every win would be like fucking shattered. I'd be like, dude, you went out and just caught like 12 passes for 300 yards, set two, three touchdowns and are the best fucking tight end in the, in the history of the NFL. And you're practically in tears that we lost the game. And he's like, well, it's that important to me. And I was like, yeah, 
but you're one of, of 10 people and you're assuming that every other 21 people on this team are playing and doing it as hard as you can. And who's to say that they aren't? And so now you're gauging your emotional uh, well-being feeling, like putting this emotional, like, you know, sadness into this deal when, uh, when those people don't give a fuck. They're just happy to get their paychecks. And, yeah. and, and, I, and I remember thinking, like, dude, you, like, I couldn't fucking do that. And I mm-hmm. remember thinking, like, uh, I will gauge. And I, like, I was more sad if I didn't play well against a person and we won the game. Like, mm-hmm. wins and losses didn't fucking, like, I was bummed when we lost the NSP Championship team and I go to the Super Bowl. But, like, wins and losses didn't affect me the same way my performance against the individual did because it was the only way that I knew how to, like, you know, protect, like, uh, it, we protect our own egos. Like, very few people are, like, wear that shit on their sleeve to the point where, like, the world can really affect them. And uh, I just remember being like, that was my defense mechanism, that I can control what I can control. And I'll do this in the offseason, I'll train, I'll play at the highest level, but I have to yep. control this piece but I just always remember when um, when talking with people that played you know college or high school or you know at a high level or played in the NFL I always ask like did you ever really ever give over to the point where like like you loved it to the point where you didn't know if you could do without this mm-hmm. and uh, it's always pretty interesting because they're always like oh yeah yeah and I'm like really and then some people are like no and then when I tell them that they're like I think I might have done that too or other people are like I don't know what the fuck you're talking about you're a crazy person how could you do that job without really fucking loving like to be able to like like you have to love it to go through the pain uh, the suffering you know the uh, you know the trials the tribulations the whole deal and I'm like I just wanted to fucking beat people's asses so I think this leads to the the fifth stage of motivation Jim and then you're internalizing the process the process of motivation it's almost not defining yourself as a football player but then encompassing the hard work the the camaraderie the the teamwork everything about the sport but not necessarily the sport yeah i think um exactly right internalizing the process of motivation, like what it takes to, um, you know, Ryan and Desi, maybe this is familiar, like internal, external motivation, that stuff's all pretty well studied. And, um, what I'm talking about is more toward the, uh, in process, like the process of motivation, not just being internally motivated, but understanding like what moves you, where to go and how, like for John, just after that, um, uh, story, I might say that like what, what is super motivating to you and the thing that you can transfer to other things is that like, you love the individual battle. Right. And that's something to acknowledge. And the idea is like, where does that transfer? What are like the individual battles in the workplace or whatever um, that you can lock into in, in like a healthy, competitive way and knock those things out one by one? Be like, oh, that's my challenge. Fine. Yeah, I do care about the good of this, you know, the power athlete team now, but I'm going to knock out that challenge because that's what gets me really moving. Well, what's nice, especially with these guys, is um, I influence. So before, like, uh, if I played with somebody, like, my sphere of influence was only so much. Like, I wasn't like, I always wish, and I used to tell the coach, I'm like, can you just let me control the offensive line salary cap? <laughs> right? I mean, it's true. Like being like, yeah. hey, dude, I will do a good job managing the salary cap and basically deciding who would people get paid. But I mm-hmm. want to be the person to be like, you know what? I don't think, you, you know, you're earning this. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, like to me that point. So what I really like is, isn't that, isn't that awesome? And I, I remember him being like, what the fuck are you talking were you, about? Were you talking about any specific teammate at this point? <laughs> yeah, uh, all of them. But I mean, it's true. Like, because. Uh, but I, I think with like a team like these guys, especially, uh, we have a vested interest in 
in, um, you know, uh, executing, you know, our common goal of fucking global domination. I mean, you know, much mm -hmm. like you, you want to do this, like, like I want to own the space in terms of performance training in that I want to alter the trajectory of how people are approaching it. That, you know, when we go over and, and, uh, and talk to people or we start going through strength conditioning or just training or really the process that it takes to increase and unlock athletic potential, all these things, mm -hmm. uh, these are questions that they've never thought about. This is a methodology that they've never approached, which should be the foundational method methodology for every single person that's going to pick up a barbell as it relates to doing something outside of the gym. Now, if you just want to go get sweaty, go fucking lift weights, you know, right. go, go crazy. But if you're looking to use uh, physical training, whether it be, you know, GPP, whether like, you know, a barbell, something in the weight room and, and you know, and disseminate it down into doing something like performance based, you should have a performance based mindset with like a clear defined task at hand. Mm -hmm. Like this is, yep. this is the roadmap I'm going to follow. This is where I am in my roadmap, in my journey. And I'm going to follow this and I'm going to follow it until it doesn't, uh, until I can't get any farther. And then I'm going to take a different direction and I'm going to do that until I'm the best. And I'm going to do it, rinse, rinse, lather and repeat every single day. So I have the opportunity to do better. And to me, that just seems like, like, like that's the roadmap for it. And, that's uh, it. yeah, it's, it's not that complicated, but yet we talk to people and they're like, like, it's like we're speaking Greek or we're from a different language. So what you're telling me is that the more times I go into the gym and I do this, right. the better I am. Yeah. Uh, that, wow, okay. So you, you get me on a completely different tangent there, but like, but yeah, that's it. And, and the idea is that that is the way, right? Put a purpose out there, put a mission or a, a goal at the end of this thing, outline the process and go full bore toward it. That's it. But the tracks have to be laid before you rev the freaking engine. And I think the laying of the tracks is the hardest part for most people because they want to be good abstractly. Um, they don't know exactly how to move down that path. So uh, what you're talking about is creating the tools for people to figure out instead of people being like, yeah, I just want to be good. Well, how do you want to be good? I don't fucking know. I just figured it would just happen. And you're like, um, okay, let's put something together. But I mean, that's training. That's like life. Like, mm -hmm. like I would never assume that I would just naturally be good at anything. And uh, like, like you hand me a lacrosse stick. I assume that like there's going to be a learning curve in how to use this thing. And you've had the opportunity. You play the cross, I would look and be like, well, why aren't I as good as tax? Like to me, I'd be like, well, yeah, of course I'm going to suck. Cause I've never had an opportunity to pick this thing up. But if you right. give me the fucking opportunity, if we go in and work every day, we sit and we do film and you show me all the nuance, I will be able to close that gap faster because, uh, um, I just, you know, assume I'm a fucking, Pract you know, existential fucking superhuman being. Uh, but yep. like, that's the practice and the opportunity. And then we would put the model together. Cause I know that I can accelerate learning if we follow the model at which we're using. And this is honestly one of my, my biggest pet peeves as a, a, a coach, a teacher, and hearing people say, oh, I'll never, be, uh, I'll never be to that level, whether it's, you know, squats, speed, or kind of uh, intelligence. And they've, they've fixed the mindset that they will never be that. And one of my favorite kind of quotes goes to Ray Allen, professional basketball player, when uh, a reporter talked about his gift. And he immediately stopped the reporter and he's like, as soon as you said this gift, I've worked, you are discrediting all of the time and hours I've put into my three-point shot. And I'll, I'll never forget that because as soon as I hear someone give a mindset that's fixed, I'll never be this. I'm like, you one, you're discrediting one, the, the person you're referring to, and two, yourself. Yeah. Yep. Or the overnight sensation. Like when, oh, you guys are an overnight sensation in this. And you're like, for 10 years, overnight sensation every <laughs> exactly. fucking day. Like, but I mean, but... 
but don't you think that people want to believe that there's just some like magical sports gene or there's just some magical piece of intelligence that like, you know, the, uh, you know, Michael Jordan just showed up and I always think that he's like, dude, I sucked. I was awful. I got cut off my basketball team. Like I fucking went home and locked myself in my room and cried about it. And I thought to myself, you know what? Like I'm going to go out and fucking be the best. And he put a, a, a plan together to happen. He just didn't naturally do it. I mean, you talk to, uh, like who was it? Uh, uh Megatron, the receiver from, uh, uh Detroit. Calvin Johnson. Yeah. Calvin Johnson, Calvin Johnson yeah. Ta- you know, talking about, he was like, I was fucking awful. I got like, you know, I didn't start on my high school team in the beginning, like, like all of these different stories of these people, like, and, but I just think that like the media and the public and people want to believe that it's just some magical hand of God touched them and they were fucking athletes or whatever, so that it's easier for them to be like, well, I wasn't blessed like that. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you're actually referring to this psychological principle, but that is fairly well documented. It's true. There's these stories of like, uh, you know, Herman Melville, um, these authors who created this incredible stuff. Um, you don't write Moby Dick uh, because you're super gifted. Uh, there's stories of Herman Melville roaming the attics and, and levels of this house that's um, hidden away in the Berkshires, just obsessing about this thing for a long, long time. Writ, writ, uh, wrote hundreds of drafts, hundreds. And if you suggest that if you had seen draft number 50, say, you'd be like, no, this guy is not a literary genius. He's just some dude plodding along, uh, not recognizing all that went into it. But as human beings, we like to think that. We like to, we use the word genius in part because it takes us away um, from the work that those geniuses went through to become that. You like to assume that um, there's this thing that I can't touch. So again, the onus is sort of off you. So I'll just hang back here and do my, my thing, right? I, we say this all the time. There has to be, if you talk about athleticism as, let's just put it in terms of athletics, uh, track and field, if you want to run, jump, that kind of stuff, um, there are maybe millions of better athletes than Michael Jordan, or maybe on this, at least on the same level. There's probably never been a better basketball player that has nothing to do with the raw material that he started off with, right? And so I want to, we talked about the five, like zero to five, four levels of motivation and what you introduced something that almost blew my mind. It was the negative one level. And yep. I reflected back to when I was coaching uh, D3 lacrosse. So there was kids that would just make destructive actions. Like they had great opportunity to play, but they would just take steps to take away from their performance. Like they were, I mean, D3, they're paying for school. They're paying to play there. And they mm-hmm. would just go against it. I don't know. So let's talk about Wait, that. So you paid to play? Paid to play. Wow. D3 All-Star, so, bro. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, that's the purity of the game, I guess. That's it. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. That's why many argue that D3 is superior to any of those I, bigger schools. Yeah, no Division one. <laughs> no, no one's ever said that ever. Uh, actually, my brothers. My brothers are D3 All-Stars. Oh, all right. That's, that's why my brother Eddie's jokes. He's like, I got D3 heart. That's what he talks about. Oh, D3 heart. Yeah, uh, my brother like Eddie's deal is he's like, you got to have D3 heart, which yeah. is, uh, you know, you're just basically going out there playing. Like uh, like my brother always jokes that, like, you know you're playing Division three football when uh, you're out on the field and you can literally hear your dad 
yelling. Like so, 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 so. I so, had flashbacks. I know so, exactly what he's talking about. So my dad is. Uh, uh, my dad was a hellacious shit talker, but not towards like uh, the kids, but like he thought that the coaches sucked. So my dad would sit up there and he'd scream like, "Why don't we have that play?" and shit like this. And he would fucking constantly like. And so my brother's out there, and uh, he said he's on the field, and he's like, all of a sudden, he's like, you know, you're in Division Three, when all of a sudden I hear him fucking dad screaming from the fucking, why don't we have that play? And then the best is the coach would be like, hey, uh, can your father stop uh, yelling that during the game because uh, it's uh, it's it's hurting our confidence a little bit. It's <laughs> that's how you know you're in Division Three. Yeah, and it's true. Yeah, the early Lonzo Ball. So the. Um, <laughs> The I, I actually I do I you know if if you haven't heard of Knox College um, the finest liberal arts institution um, ever created at least in the Midwest um, then you're missing out but that's where I played my Division three football and was uh, and loved my experience um, to brag just a little bit got to start every single game was a two time team captain and got a handful of awards toward the back end that moved me on to the next step but um, text what you're what you're saying is is really comes back to that question like what do we want out of the situation there is like at least in theory like a purity about non-scholarship sports if money's not the thing lighting the tunnel it's just your passion for doing this at least in theory the other very real human truth is that especially in this like-based economy that we live in on our phones um some of us not some of us, no one in this conversation, but uh, there are people out there who want to go tell people that they play college sports and that's plenty for them. You know what I mean? I can't tell you. And, and I support these kids. I'm not trying to rag on them too hard, but, but I, I kind of, you know, you know, the Twitter posts of, you know, blessed to have received an offer from school X, like, okay, fine. Like I, I'm, I'm excited that you got the opportunity to, to play on the next level, but we've got guys posting every time a school comes in to talk to them, you know? Um, so the motivation really does matter. If you want to claim I am an NCAA athlete and that's enough. Um, and you're making destructive decisions. It might be because you've already hit your aim, right? You, you set NCAA athlete as ceiling, not floor right? That's not the, instead of it being the start of whatever comes next. And the, and the next step is whatever, win, win the freaking one-on-one battles, win the conference championship for whatever conference you're in and move on beyond that, then your behavior changes. Right. And that's, again, that's really the big charge for us, right? Like, is we want people to confront their decision-making. That's it. Is there like a, I mean, this is another interesting point. Like you bring up like these kids posting up about like, oh, you know, uh, so blessed that the school came to see me. Is that mm-hmm. a way for them to put themselves out there so that they can get some like positive reinforcement by a bunch of fucking people they don't know as a way to like, uh, like one, I, I, I was kind of thinking back. I'm like, when I was in high school, I probably would have been fucking embarrassed. Uh, but then also I didn't grow up in this, uh, you know, social media age right. where, you know, people are willing to fucking get naked just for, you know, a hundred right. likes on these things so that they can get some right. validation. So I, as I, as I look at this, I'm thinking to myself, is this indicative of where we are, that we have people that are literally trying to attain things just so that they can get some admiration of a whole bunch of fucking people they don't know. And then, I, and, and then, and then what's, what, 
what psychological disorder is that one? Because I'll, I'll tell you this, like if I gauged my worth based off of a, what a bunch of people that don't know me think, like as an NFL player, like I, I used to look up and see these fat fucking drunks shoving fucking hot dogs in their mouth and being like, get your fucking ass going. And you're like, dude, you're almost having a heart attack up there eating hot dogs and you're yelling at us. I just remember being like, holy fuck, the hypocrisy is amazing. But like, mm-hmm. uh, so like that's... Like that's another like yeah. I I I think that the things that you have to combat more importantly the the problems and stresses that are being compounded on kids today are mm-hmm. so far stacked against them just for the mere fact of like internet social media like I told my kids all the time I'm like I am so sorry that you have to grow up in this social media age that with like cell phones and all this bullshit and I, I tell them stories I'm like we didn't have any of this stuff literally like we went out and played and we had to come in when it got dark or like just I tell them these stories and they're like wow so wait a minute so how did people call you like like you know grandma called you on this I'm like we actually had this thing that was attached to the wall and you took it off the thing and I showed them a picture and they were like well uh, how do you see her and I'm like "Uh, there's no FaceTime you literally hey you if you want to see somebody you had to go there like 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 there was no text messaging there was nothing like when I showed them what a fax was they were like what like uh, like so many of these things are are uh, like and uh, I think for you especially I mean just seeing this and trying to figure out how do you how do you motivate people in this and it's like man like there's so much false motivation with this yeah, for sure. There, there's a ton of fault. There's a lot of that text that level negative one uh, is happening all over the place because we do live in a click slash like based economy. Um, it's kind of a mess. And I think the only and it, not only is that the truth, but the other truth is that it is on an exponential rise. So um, we can essentially, you know, I don't want to we have to pay attention to what people are paying attention to in our line of work. And what they're paying attention to is their phone. And what we can guarantee about that thing they're currently paying attention to is that it's going to look a lot different two years from now than it does today. And in 10 years, like we can't even project that far. Like we can't at this table, but it is, it's going to include virtual reality and all that kind of stuff. Um, So that's why our process always comes back to taking care of the self. Right. Because like we cannot troubleshoot um, technologies that are rising at a level that has never been seen before. We can't we can't troubleshoot that. Um, What we can do is make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Thank you very much. Um, Making sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Right. Um, Because all that we have to ensure that the way that we interact with these continued and evolving stresses is like whatever our best shot at it right? You want to be overtaken by the phone or bad food decisions and stuff like that. You know, like we talked already about already, take away the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, I think, I don't know, you guys, um, ghrelin and leptin are those things. That, yeah, for sure. That comes up all the time, right? Um, you don't sleep, you change actual production of chemicals, hormones in your body. Um, you, you change the way that you interact with a population. Hangry is a very, very real thing, at least in my world. Like I can't interact with people um, or devices well, uh, if the self is not controlled. And that's, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's easy to go down these thought lines. Like we are, what the hell are we doing to ourselves? Where is this thing going? But it's, it's also kind of refreshing to say, we're not battling, uh, the iPod or you see the iPod, look at, there you go. Perfect example. We're not battling the iPhone, right? Um, we're only trying to take care of ourselves, develop a purpose, uh, outline a process and, and kind of be badasses within that realm specifically. Asked and answered, dude. That's good. 
Uh, Jim, anything else you want to pop into? I mean, we're kind of at that time mark. Dude, I could um, I could talk to you guys all day. I think I got nothing to plug. That, that's the other um, thing that we're we're pretty excited about is we just um, we know our like purpose and motivation. We're pretty we're pretty driven to just hack this field of. I hate that word hack. I shouldn't use it. Yeah, no, we do too. Anybody that uses the word hack is a fucking hack. Is a hack. I I completely agree. Um, So we are trying to enter this field that's 40 million people strong. That's athletics in the U.S., you know, and just be a a positive contagion in that world. I I, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning, but uh, the development for this um, came with sitting in, I mentioned Todd Rose, sitting in his neuroscience class fall of 2015, we, we were talking about attention and all the things that lend themselves to getting a human being's attention, like novelty, cooperation, all this kind of stuff. Um, not only attention, but then encoding that information. And what we found through that essentially is that maybe the ideal learning platform, like as far as we know it, is sports, right? There is incredible power in this. No one ever walks into a biology classroom shaking with excitement. But I'm telling you, but I've been that guy before pretty much every game I've played. Okay, it doesn't, it is just different in those ways. So uh, like you mentioned at the beginning, John, the curb stomping coaches out there, I'm not going to call them out, but, but clearly they exist. Um, so we want to enter this space and make sure that all that power that we talked about is aimed in the right direction. Killer, so, man. There you have it. And I guess, you know, just good athlete project, uh, search all social yeah. media and you'll yeah. find, you'll find yeah. Jim and the crew and, uh, yeah. Jim, mm-hmm. awesome. yeah, definitely check them out, man. That's yeah, awesome. Thanks for jumping on the show. And, um, I guess fucking, yeah, we're out of here. That's another episode we'll of the premier podcast in the strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing, ing. All right, people. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance to hear more about the good athlete project. Follow them on Instagram at coach the number four kindness or head to goodathleteproject.com to get a link to the good athlete podcast and remember a great place to start with any athlete is to simply ask what do you want allow them to vocalize the necessary steps to achieve their own goals until next time bye